Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Katie Shea, Managing Partner of Divergent Capital. Katie has had a lot of experience investing in both sides of the table as a founder, operator, angel investor, and venture capitalist. Some of her investments include City Row, Parade, and Topicals. We discuss why and how she launched a venture fund in the middle of the pandemic, how she approached angel investing, where the bar is for digitally native brands, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Katie. Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's been uh, quite a while since we last caught up. I know. You were supposed to come on the show like six months ago, and I'm so excited to have you on. This has been long awaiting. Uh, Samara was very sweetly put us in touch, and it's been really great to get to know you. But like, get me up to date. What has happened in the past six months in your life? Yeah, it's been a roller coaster for sure. I appreciate the patience with me. I think I had to reschedule because I was like about to give birth <laughs> to, to my second. Um, so that's probably the the biggest life update. Now I have two kids, uh, two and a half year old and, and almost six month old. So it's been uh, a lot. I, I joke that if I'm not like covered in poop or puke, I'm like on a LP pitch or a founder call. So just mixing everything together. And I launched a fund, uh, which has been kind of a, a long time in the making. I partnered up with a good friend, you know, turned co-investor, turned lifelong uh, professional marriage, this amazing woman, Lucy Wang. She's a machine learning scientist <laughs> turned investor. Uh, she was first investing at Graycroft and then a smaller deep tech fund called 112 Capital. I think you know more about my background, but I came into venture very much from the founder and marketing side of the house. So I spent my entire career like launching and scaling startups really from that zero to 30 million in revenue stage before I started angel investing and before I got into venture full time. Lucy, totally different, very complimentary skill set. She's like the CTO to my to my CMO background. She's kind of the entire ecosystems go-to on like robotics, machine learning, AI, totally my better half. So we, we've we known each other for almost a decade. It's kind of a, a partnership that I think had always been in the back of our minds. And then we decided, hey, global pandemic, this is the perfect time to raise a debut venture fund. But yeah, we did. And so we hit the ground running, really started deploying in March. Definitely a a labor of love, but we're every day we're getting kind of more and more excited about the partnership thesis, the companies we've invested in. So I joke uh, with everybody that like the last 12 months was my most productive year, grew like a human baby, a venture baby, tried to potty train another baby. It's it's all downhill from here. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, first of all, I mean, congrats for having a second child. That's amazing. As well, launching a fund. It's so interesting because I've even talked to like other people in certainly different capacities, but it's like when the world is 
seems, you know, quote unquote ending or something, you know, catastrophic as, you know, global pandemic, then sometimes you maybe realize, okay, well, what do I actually have always wanted to do, but never really thought about like the opportunity, whatever. And so I feel like with Divergent, it kind of seems maybe like that as well, like along those lines. I completely believe that like this 2020, 2021 vintage is going to be like a 2008, 2009 vintage for, for a couple of reasons, right? Like we could be wrong. We're pretty confident. And I think the, the main reason why is when you think about both on the founder level and the fund manager level, I think there's a lot of people like most years where you're like, oh man, like I want to go do my own thing. Like I want to start a company. I want to start a fund. I think it's really like the true crazies that actually do it when the world is full of like volatility, right? Like I think all of a sudden you're like, oh, like civic unrest, political unrest, global health pandemic, like I'm just going to stay at my cushy job at Google or my cushy job at like a tier one venture funds. Like I I think a lot of the the companies and the firms that basically were founded over the past 12, 18 months were are really being led by people who literally could not see themselves doing anything else, right? Like they were willing to take the risk. They were willing to work harder and you know do whatever, raise, start during a pandemic. We'll see if that comes to fruition, you know, 10 to 15 years from now. Uh, Venture is a pretty, you know, long tail industry, but I know that's what I'm seeing from founders and managers. It's, it's really, it's really the true crazies that got out there last year. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. I love that idea. And especially I think it holds true when you do have a pandemic, the true crazies are going out there. And I also think, right, if you're able to survive something like the pandemic, it could be that your competition's washed away. Right. And so there's just enormous, enormous opportunity for that as well. Speaking just because your backgrounds are a bit different between you and Lucy, Lucy seems to come more of like maybe like a deep tech background. How are you thinking about opportunities and what overall is your thesis? So it's so interesting. So when Lucy and I first met, there was no professional overlap. Like we met at a tech conference, we became friends, and like we never talked shop because Lucy was a deep tech investor and I was a consumer journalist investor right? Like Lucy was kind of chasing PhDs, commercializing their life's work out of universities. And I was chasing like people leaving like Facebook and Spotify and whatever to like go build the next unicorn. So it's really interesting. There was no overlap in the beginning. And then really, I think the initial kind of starting light bulb for Divergent is that we noticed that changing a couple of years ago. So what do I mean by that? Right? Like all of a sudden Lucy would meet with a founding team and it was a robotics company, but instead of the founders wanting to do that, like super safe, deep tech business model, like the robotics as a service route, like the founders wanted to own more of the value chain, right? And like have the robotic sales themselves and like sell directly into OEMs. And so she'd be like, this is super interesting. Like she'd call me and be like, how does like go to market work here, right? Like who do they sell into? What is the buyer persona? How does that buyer persona think about ROI? On the flip side, you know, I was starting to see for example, like the founder of a digital healthcare company, but at the core of the technology was like a really complicated machine learning algorithm that was way above my pay grade <laughs> to like know if it was good or bad or like there was hundreds of competitors. And so I started calling Lucy more and more often. And I was like, hey, like I, I like these founders. I like these markets, but like, can you like help me out with the tech? And literally like a 10 minute call with Lucy was the most like productive, efficient way to get like ramped up on something that I didn't know. So I think like that just started to happen more and more frequently to the point where we started to almost feel like we were becoming each other's like superpowers, even though we were, we were at different firms. And I think what really, you know, 
a couple of things that really got us over the edge. So Lucy and I, we talk about these companies. We would both get super excited about them. They like, they didn't perfectly fit in either portfolios, right? Like they, they didn't perfectly, these were companies that didn't perfectly fit in a deep tech portfolio. They didn't perfectly fit in a consumer generalist portfolio. And so we would like share the, the opportunities with our, with our peers or their other friends who are investors. And everyone was like, mm, there's like, too much risk. There's like tech risk and there's business model risk. I now have a billion dollar fund. So like, I'm just going to wait and see (laughs) until one of those risks like diminishes a little bit because, you know, I have to deploy a three to $5 million check to make my portfolio construction model work anyway. That was super interesting to us as feedback because we're like, wait a second, like where is the brave capital in the market that's willing to go super, super early, like pre-product, pre-revenue. And I think that never scared us and doesn't scare us today because I have this CMO skill set, right? Like I can underwrite, go to market and CAC to LTV. I can log into a Facebook ads manager account and like see if things are going well or not well. Lucy, like she just, she knows tech, she knows the science. And so she can really underwrite that side of the house. And so for us, we're like, we don't, like we can be brave and we can go early because we don't have to rely on all of these like third party, you know, experts or things like that to get to conviction. So that was happening. And I think, you know, last but not least, Lucy and I have always, you know, we, we bonded on this, like over our whole friendship. Um, we've definitely always been investors that were like pounding the table for the not Silicon Valley cool kid founder, like the, the like young hustler who like just graduated from school, but is like a complete visionary, but doesn't have like a track record or a pedigree to underwrite or like the PhD type that like doesn't speak VC, but like actually is the world's expert on whatever it is that they're working on. And so I think for us, we're like, there's, there's actually a bigger opportunity here. So we started, um, we started angel investing together from a shared LLC, like about two years ago, like small checks, you know, personal capital, (laughs) somewhat capped from like the personal liquidity standpoint, but we just want to really pressure test like the partnership, the thesis, you know, pre-product, pre-revenue, like true pre-seed. Can we basically find these companies, you know, help the founders put the rounds together, like see what happens and they work. So that's what we did. We invested in five companies, pre-product, pre-revenue. That early portfolio is now like a 73% IRR. So it's like, obviously it's a long game, but like early signs are looking good. Kind of around like, hey, where do we get excited? It's usually the intersection of like a tech or science that Lucy knows really well and in a market I know really well. So high level, the first five, we have a robotics company. It's in the sheet metal formation industry to start. Uh, we have a predictive analytics platform that's using machine learning and natural language processing. It's uh, selling into universities to help uh, predict and prevent student dropout, which is a revenue churn problem for a university. We have a software-only medical device. Uh, we have a science-based skincare brand, and we have a, a material science innovation that's targeting, like, replacing single-use plastics. So pretty broad, like, we say, you know, pre-seed generalist, but usually with a bit of like a tech or science edge to it. That's really, really interesting. I'd say since you invest so early, it seems like you have to be very, very hands-on with some of the founders, right? I'm just kind of curious, how are you thinking about structure in terms of number of investments you want to underwrite? So how do you think about how do you you spend your time, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. So to your point, we're going to be fairly concentrated, you know, so 25 companies over the, over the life cycle of the fund. You know, I think 
it's you know probably like most investors you I think you kind of like dip in and dip out as as needed or as your skill sets like require or when they're helpful. So I think for Lucy and I, it's it's three main pieces, right? For me, it's really like those early couple months of like, hey, you need to go from zero to a million in revenue, like ASAP. Like, what is the budget that you need? How do we kind of put KPIs in a spreadsheet? Like, who do we need to hire to get this done? For Lucy, it's almost that like, similarly, like those early months of like, hey, we can't afford the $300,000 a year CTO yet, but like Lucy can kind of come in and say like, hey, like this is how you want to set the team up. Like this needs to be the inputs of the algorithm. Like this is the data you need to be collecting. Um, like both of us can be like, hey, here's where we messed up like many times. So let's save you like the tears and the trials and the tribulations. And then raising fall-on capital, right? You know, Lucy and I, one of the biggest risks that we're underwriting is is follow-on capital and dilution over time. So Lucy and I have been doing this for a long time, you know, both of us almost a decade, you know, as angels and as as VCs. And so kind of, as I mentioned earlier, like some of the founders we're investing in, they don't have that network. Um, they don't know like what the milestones they necessarily need to hit or like what, who the right VC is to like lead the seed or the series A. Um, so that's another huge area where we get involved, like like most investors, right? Like we just did this last week with one of our companies. They they just signed an amazing Series A term sheet. But yeah, we like you know we worked with them on the deck and the narrative and emailed you know dozens of our friends. We're like, hey, take a look at this. Like we think this is right, like spot on for you. So I say those are really kind of the the three key areas. But we have a little bit of a contrarian perspective on like formal board governance and board seats at our stage. If we have a super relevant skill set and the founders like begging us to do it, like, of course, we're not going to say no. But we kind of think board seats at pre-seed are a little bit more about like VC ego than like actual like value. It's like save it for for the seed of the Series A, which, again, is a bit contrarian. But I think the reason why Lucy and I feel really confident that we can do that is because, because both of us are like founder operators turned investors. Like we tend to get the like midnight texts and phone calls anyway <laughs> from the founders. Like we're talking to them at least monthly, I'd say at some points, weekly, some points daily, depending on what's going on. That's the type of dynamic we want to maintain, right? It's like, listen, you don't have to posture with us. Like I'm actually much more interested in knowing like what's not going well and like what's keeping you up at night versus like all the great things you're going to try to tell the board <laughs> is happening. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I guess focusing on some of your consumer investments as well as maybe how you're thinking about consumer right now. We went through, and of course, you're a growth marketer, uh, so you know about this way more than me, but we went through huge arbitrage opportunities and growth, late 2000s, early 2010s, when I feel like a lot of like the companies, the disruptive companies, it was because uh, supply was so small online and you had almost endless, what seemed like maybe endless amount of like media inventory, you might not really have needed much like product innovation. And now, it seems like, especially the companies that you're talking about that are consumer-facing, it seems like there is certainly a lot that goes into the product and product innovation. I'm kind of curious, how do you approach consumer right now? Because we've also seen, as well for COVID, like a tailwind for e-commerce. And there's been some chatter about how is like late 2000s, early 2010s coming back, right, with like that arbitrage. But I would just love to see, in this day and age, what it takes to build like a massive consumer business. Yes, I am so fortunate. I've I've gotten to 
invest in, you know, founders of, of topicals, of parade, of house, of bomba socks, clean coal. Like some, I think of these like category defining like D2C companies that are ramping up to tens of millions, hundreds of millions in revenue really quickly. So it's interesting, my, to your point, like the first investment I made on the consumer side was in 2014, right? So like coming up on eight years, right? And that's actually first unicorn, like all the good things that are like dangerous because you're like, oh, I'm really great at this. <laughs> like I, everything I'm going to invest in is going to become a unicorn. So let's see, I think I can do this in a few ways. I think consumer or not, for me, I'm obsessed with founders that are really trying to solve a problem. And so I think that can look different in different categories, but especially in markets like this, which are quote unquote frothy, even though I, I kind of hate that because sometimes founders are like, if there's so much money out there and it's so frothy, like why is fundraising still so hard? So fundraising, I think can still be hard even in a quote unquote frothy market. But in markets like this, especially, I think it's nuanced, but it's there, right? There's a difference between a founder that wants to start a company and a founder that wants to solve a problem. I think personally, I feel like I can like tell somewhat quickly on like what type of, of founder that I'm talking to. The, the former is like, oh, I want to be my own boss. Like I have a lot of friends in venture. If I can just kind of like create a deck and get this thing started, like great. I think the latter camp, it's like, you know, it's David Bombas. He he found out that, you know, the number one most uh, requested item at a homeless shelter was socks, right? So he like got off the ground with this like one-to-one, buy one, give one model. Camiot Parade just had this incredible like David and Goliath, you know, narrative on like Victoria's Secret has been <laughs> responsible for like decades of women's eating disorders. Like how is this still the like underwear brand? It doesn't speak to millennials. It doesn't speak to Gen Z. You know, I think that's, I'm really looking for like that, that visionary founder that like just experienced the problem firsthand, like has a unique way to solve it. And it's just going to be that like absolute visionary, right? Alameda at Topicals, you know, she is incredible black founder, you know, every single item in the ointment aisle is basically built for white skin, right? Like acne scar and hyper, uh, hyperpigmentation, eczema. She's like, I'm going to go build a brand for me. I think when you have a founder that is very similar to the customer, you save yourself a lot of time and energy and money making mistakes and what the customer might want because they are the customer. They kind of like know what that person wants. I think the other thing that a lot of these breakouts have done really well is like they've created this cult community around around the brand. Um, particularly, I'd say the brands that are focusing a bit more on like Gen Z, like it is it is wild like how how much like micro influencers are moving the needle for for some of these brands, right? Like they don't even they're not even looking to get paid, right? They just want to feel like they're part of something cool. They gift product that like the cost of that is like a couple of dollars and they post it on their Instagram account and they have whatever, you know, 5,000, 10,000 followers and they have some type of rev share. That's been super powerful. So no, I think it varies, but at the end of the day, for me, it's, it's always going to be founder first. Um, there needs to be like an obsessiveness with the product that they're building for like nuanced perspective on who their customer is and what their customer wants. And I think from there, it's like the product has to be a best in class product. I think in like the heyday of when like Facebook and Instagram is super cheap, like you could get away with a man product. I think today the breakouts are like, you get that product and then you tell five to 10 of your friends about it, right? So you have that like virality coefficient to all of your paid 
marketing. When you think really moves the needle. It's funny when I first met, I was friends with Dave. And when he first told me he was starting a stock company, I had just sold my manufacturing company. And I was like, dude, like, why, why are you, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, you're, I was like, so jaded. I was like, you're so smart. But then he sent me some samples of the socks. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I'm never going to be able to wear another pair of socks again. And like, to me, that was really the, the closer, right? Of like, wow, like you touch and feel and hold this product in your hand. And you're like, this is, this is a great product. So I think it's more than ever, like that virality coefficient is important now that to your point, you're seeing like Facebook and Instagram CACs, like 10x what they were five to seven years ago. When you're underwriting risk and if it's a brand that, for example, the founder is very much attached to the brand, like maybe this the founder is becoming a celebrity in their own right through their brand, if that makes sense. Um, how do you think about that? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, is that can sometimes be a little bit unnerving? I think my founder type, like they kind of know that they need to be a bit self-promotional to like get this thing off the ground, but they're actually like not at all obsessed with that. And even within my portfolio, I have different variants of that. Like David Bombas, Ryan at Clean Colt, I'm not even sure they have social media profiles. <laughs> like Helen at House, Cami at Parade, all my topicals. They're definitely a bit more of like the face to the brand. It's interesting. I actually haven't noticed until I just said that out loud. Like there is a gender component to that. Or like that, at least in my portfolio, the female founders seem to be a little bit more attached to the brand. But I think that also makes sense, right? Like if the majority of your, your customers are female, like it's, that's a part of like the inspiring story, right? It's like I'm buying from a female founder, right? That's like kind of changing the ecosystem. So I don't know. I definitely want to invest in a business that even without that founder having to be everywhere, the business is going to work. And I think that comes back to your earlier, like earlier point on product, right? The product, like the bigger the business gets, the further and further customers get away from the founder story anyway, right? So I think it's like a great way to get from like zero to 10 million in revenue, zero to 15. But at some point, like something about the product and the brand needs to be resonating outside of that founder narrative. So I don't know if that's particularly insightful, but that's definitely one way to think about it and kind of how how I've thought about it as well. No, that makes sense. I mean, I guess when you're thinking about the long run, especially if you want to build a business that can achieve venture back returns, I think to your point, the product has to be incredible. Like maybe you can do quite well based off of the marketing and the branding in the first, in, in the early days. Obviously those have to be great as well, but the product and that experience, that delightful experience, like when you open Bombas for the first time, for example, right? When you actually, that product really has to grab you. And that's really almost like the long-term like competitive advantage that you have. Yeah, totally. And again, like I think, you know, when I think about like next generation commerce and like kind of what we're thinking about on the divergent side of the house, I actually, I'm very intrigued about like stigma heavy brands right now and like consumer opportunities. So like, I think, Parade is a decent example of that. Topicals is a decent example of that. Even house, right? Like it's booze, it's underwear, it's like ointment for for like skin issues, right? And I think when you have this like some type of like extra barrier of difficulty that the brand needs to like jump over to to work, it's even more powerful on the community side, right? Like because like someone that buys Parade doesn't just feel like they're like, oh, I'm like buying some new great $9 underwear and it's like more sustainable. They're like buying into the story of like the new American underwear story. Like Cammy says that a lot, right? Like like taking down the bad guy of Victoria's Secret. Topicals are similar, right? It's like you walk into a CVS and like nothing about the formulation 
in any of these products on the shelves right now have been updated in 30 or 40 years. They're made for like light people. <laughs> like that's not what the world looks like anymore. So I think that's something that I, you know, Lucy and I are kind of thinking about and like the next gen commerce and like where these cult brands come from. And I think there's, for us, we're definitely more intrigued right now if we think there's like a stigma or like a David Goliath story because topicals, right? It's like, I think what they're doing for skin empowerment is what like some of the brands have done for like body empowerment before, right? It's like, for like, why is perfectly clear skin the most beautiful skin, right? Like we all have acne or eczema or dry skin or whatever, and kind of just like normalizing that journey. So, you know, that kid now that's like literally on social media starting at the age of seven, <laughs> which is like petrifying, you know, has a little bit more of a representative worldview based on the brands that they're seeing. Totally, totally. I absolutely agree. And gosh, I wish we had this conversation a month ago because I would have invited you to speak if you be game at the Sigma Summit, which was two weeks ago. We had uh, brands and investors um, all talk about categories that were heavily stigmatized, which was a lot of fun. So we'll definitely get you next year um, if you're game. Let's be the speaker at us. That was a lot of fun. But how are you seeing, and I appreciate you, how you thinking about as well, like new developing markets and thinking about what's wrong with the current players in the market, right? Who are they not serving? And I think Topicals was an excellent example in that way. How are you also seeing brands, like interesting ways brands approaching growth? Like there's a lot of talk, a lot of buzz about community. You need to build a community. But I'd love to kind of hear, especially as someone that's you know a prolific marketer like yourself, how are you thinking about some of the, how these new brands are approaching growth? So it's interesting. I If I had to talk about one thing here, <laughs> what the difference that I'm seeing like in kind of the, in the market, like, you know, companies that are, they're growing, they're going up to the right. And like the true breakouts, like clearly on that venture scale of like five, 10 million in year one, (laughs) honestly, like these brands are, they're pumping out so much product. Like, I think like the days of like single product or like small silhouette uh, or like kind of small capsule collection are gone. Right. And like where I've seen the most success, again, I've, I've invested in, in like 50 companies now, not just, you know, brands exclusively, you know, about half of them personally, and then half as, as a VC. That is where I'm seeing like true sales velocity come from, right? So like going back to like Parade, right? Like they literally launch like a new brand almost like every single week. Like they have Lease and then they have Sport and then they have Pastels, they have Days of the Week. And so like, they have this diehard customer and then they add something new that they can buy like every two to three weeks. You see the same thing with house, right? Like they rely more on like new flavors, right? They have like this starter sample pack and like try your own flavors. And then every month they kind of have a new flavor. So like if you have these customers in the door that like, like the brand, like the product, I'm seeing that work really well. So it's to me, it's like more and more of a reliance on an exceptional product development team that's almost like cranking out new products way more than definitely more than the incumbents. But that to me is where I'm seeing like real, real LTV expansion. And then I, it like, it feeds on itself, right? Cause for any like performance marketers, this, this is not, this is not particularly novel, but when you have that type of like velocity of new product launches, flavors, like whatever it is, you can build stronger and stronger lookalike audiences based on your highest LTV customer, right? So like the higher and faster you can get that high LTV customer and like start to build lookalike audiences off that customer, it's 
it's like becomes a beautiful kind of system in regards to paid complementing organic, organic complementing paid. This reminds me a little bit of actually a conversation with Megan Bent at uh, Harbinger Ventures. And I was wondering, how do you then, if brands you see are releasing a lot more SKUs, how then are, as an investor, are you thinking about operational efficiency versus maybe like brand efficiency? Because of course, I'd imagine you kind of run into a bit of a, a problem there. Yeah, I think I'm more like known on the performance marketing side now, but I actually did, I started a manufacturing company in college um, and we sold it in 2013 and it was very different. Like we never raised capital. We bootstrapped uh, to profitability. We factored our, against our receivables to grow. We sold like the Neiman Marcus Macy's and Bloomingdale's of the world before all of those like went out of business. <laughs> so it was a very, it was a dev- very different landscape. This was, we got off the ground in like 2008, 2009, but to that point, I have been in so many warehouses <laughs> in, in my career. And like we switched to our 3PL three times. We worked with, you know, international distributors. We did home shopping channel. We did retail. We did direct consumer. It was a logistical night. It's a logistical nightmare. So it's interesting. I hear this a lot from my, from my founders that I tend to dig into like ops and supply chain more than some other consumer investors, because I know that like, if you're on the venture path and you miss a month of like 20 to 50% month over month growth because you were sold out of your best seller. Like that really sucks. <laughs> so all to say, just for me, what that looks like in practice is like, I want as much confidence on that, like supply chain founder or that ops founder or that hire as I do on like the once in a generation brand builder, right? Like I think my you know, lack, for lack of a better word, like my unicorn co-founding team is like one of both, right? And like the roles are clear. And so when they are disagreeing with each other, it's not because they both think like, oh, I know what I'm talking about at brand. Like I know what I'm talking about supply chain, like tends to be founders like have swim lanes and like fundamentally respect the other one for their swim lane, right? It's like, of course, there'll always be disagreements at like the founder level, the C-suite level, at least for me, I've seen that dynamic work really well. And it's hard. Like, it's really hard. I have a couple of portfolio companies now. They're like, we just need, we need that ops person now. You know, we could like manage this with our 3PL with a couple million dollars a year, you know, trajectory. Now we're doing a couple of million dollars a month <laughs> like, and shit's breaking. And so it generally, you know, I think generally the solve is you have to go hire somebody that's, you know, for, unfortunately poach somebody from a company that's, you know, a couple million dollars a month ahead of you, right? So you can basically like take that person's playbook, figure out all the mistakes that they made and kind of apply it to to their company as soon as possible. When you're thinking about investing at the early stages and as well as brand building, and I guess maybe this ties back into the operational efficiency question, but do you look at brands that actually are cross-category? I haven't, um, or I should say I probably looked, but I haven't invested I don't think that candidly was like super intentional. I think it just comes from the place of like, I know how hard it is to kind of get from like the zero to one on the product development side of the house. Um, And just generally I orient towards and I guide founders towards like focus on one category, like be the dominant player there and like then think about expansion across categories. I've seen that work better. I think that's, that was my bias operationally. I think the hardest thing for for startups is to focus, right? Like it's, I think the best founders like say like one yes to every 99 no's, <laughs> right? And it's like, that's like, that's kind of the rigor. I think you have to, you have to have in those early days to not get off track. 
Those are good points. I mean, just in terms of how you also see, can you really master or create maybe one product in a particular category rather than going across category? I think another piece of that is like where, like what I usually want to see and hear from founders is like, we're going to actually let our customers tell us what they want next versus kind of like from day zero, like speculating on what that might be. Right. So I've seen that work better strategically versus like, hey, we we think they're going to want these seven things across category, like public goods, the brandlesses of the world. Like that's just a totally different strategy. Right. There's also something to be said of like, it is so miserable and painful that if you figure it out, like you have your moat and like, yeah, maybe you don't have a ton and ton of M&A, but you get to a couple hundred million dollars year in profitability and like you you have an IPO route. Right. Like Figs is a great example of that. So. Personally, I've I've tended to stay more in like a focus on one sector first. Well, bringing up figs, has that changed at all how you think about e-commerce and maybe when you think about investing in brands about whether or not they should go to retail earlier or later or if at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't change much for me, but I think it changed it changed the narrative slightly for a lot of other investors. I think there's definitely been this like serious serious cool off of venture wanting to touch CPG, which I understand. But I hate to say this because the bar just sounds so high and I think intimidating, but like the only way consumer, like not consumer tech, like right, like straight CPG makes sense is like if they can really get to like close to a $10 million run rate year one. Like that sounds insane, but like that, that is like the bar, right? Like five to 10. And that's kind of what I'm looking for. Like in some insane combination of everything going right, can this company do that and like really be off to the races? I think the other thing to consider is capital efficiency with these types of businesses, right? Like best case scenario, usually you're talking about three to six X revenue multiples. And so like there's outliers, but like that's kind of how I think about exit outcomes. And so you have to, you have to figure out like how much capital do you need to be doing 300, 400 million dollars in revenue. And does it still make sense <laughs> to like start and run this business, you know, to, to that point, right? I think the the line is a little harder on, hey, we want, you know, you to be profitable or close to profitable for consumer businesses than it is for, you know, SaaS software and a whole other host of business models. So I don't want to like scare the crap out of anyone of like that. How does that, how is that even possible? And like, but you know, I think you know, I've at least seen you, you really know that you picked a winner when you're, you know, you're doing kind of multi millions of dollars a year, right? And kind of like year two, year three. And don't get me wrong, like I was raised by entrepreneurs and small business owners. Like there are, I have nothing against lifestyle businesses. Like I think they're incredible. And I think that those are the right types of businesses for 99% of people that think they want to start a business. But I'm strictly speaking into like the like what makes sense for a venture portfolio. Totally, totally. And you're a venture capitalist. So that makes a lot of sense in terms of what you would actually invest in versus what you wouldn't. What is one thing you would change about venture capital? There's so much ego. <laughs> There's so many things I would change about venture. I like it actually shocks me that I've landed in this asset class. Like my dad was a firefighter, a small business owner. My mom was like a stay-at-home mom of four turned teacher, both incredibly entrepreneurial, but like I did not know what venture capital was for for most of my life. Everyone, you know, I admired and aspired to be was a small business owner, right? With like a cash flow positive business that was 
paying their mortgage and sending their kids to college, like based on that, that cash flow. So for me, it's like pretty shocking that I, that this is like what I do full time. I think I just, I love the founders. I love like people that literally like put everything on hold and like risk everything to like go after a big idea. I think it is so brave and so inspiring and like so energizing to be around people that are doing that all day. Uh, And I think the stage where we get involved, as far as the cap table goes, we are as close to aligned with the founder as we could ever possibly be, right? So like the incentives at the very beginning, I think are are really aligned, which is why let's like Lucy and I want to stay there, right? Like the, the earlier, the better. You know, we don't aspire to have like a billion dollar fund with a huge platform team, right? Like we we love kind of working side by side with the founders. So I don't know, I don't know if that answers your question, um, but I think... I think the egos are what really like I struggle with the most. I find it kind of funny that like anytime you have like a success story, right? Like a multi-billion dollar outcome and IPO, Twitter blows up, blog post blows up. I'm like, we called it. Like we knew that this was going to happen. And like, I think the, the reality of it is VCs are mostly wrong, right? Like, let's just say you do have a 25 to 35 company portfolio, which is probably average across the industry. Chances are one to four of your companies are going to make up all of the returns of your fund, which means you were wrong, like 75 plus percent of the time. So to me, just like that statistic next to the ego is like my, or the intellectualization of everything is kind of like my, my biggest pet peeve. And I think from an ethos perspective, Lucy and I are really similar there. Like if we, if we have 30 minutes to kill, like we're not going to get in a Twitter fight. We're not going to write a blog post. Like we're going to call a founder that's having a bad month. And like, that's like, that to me is just more my style of, of venture, I guess. But um, sometimes I definitely feel like we're a little bit out, we're outliers there. Lucy doesn't even have, Lucy doesn't even have a Twitter account. She might be the only VC I know that doesn't have a Twitter account. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I think that's very, very true in terms of the ego and what you can see on Twitter. Um, Because as you say, it's an outlier business, right? I mean, only if you invest uh, 25 companies, probably two to four will survive or will able to get you the returns that you need to. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? This is not a good question. I haven't. I don't know if I've read a book in like in years between uh, having two babies back to back, raising a venture fund. This is not professional at all. There's a the last book I really enjoyed reading was called Expecting Better. It's a pregnancy related book, and actually Haley at first round is the one who recommended it to me when I was when I told her I was pregnant. And so basically, it's this really it's this badass woman, Emily Oster. I think she's like a behavioral psychologist, right? She's kind of like a world-renowned professor. Basically, she kind of like chapter by chapter breaks down like the math and science behind all these pregnancy-related rules. So like no drinking, no sushi, like uh, no coffee, like kind of all of these things, which to me was just so refreshing because it's like, I'm sorry, like I'm a 30 plus year old woman. And like, you're all of a sudden telling me I can't do all these things, but no one can explain why. So she kind of just like dives into the the science and data and like public medical like results and records and things like that. So that's like, that's the best I can give you for an answer. And that's probably incredibly indicative of the life stage that I'm in. No, thanks for mentioning it. Yeah. I think also for me, like 
I'm a total workaholic and I feel like my, like every day, night, weekend, like somehow is, is like work related. Cause venture is also like a very, it's a social job. So like between happy hours and the dinner. So when I do read they're actually, it's very like intentionally not business. Like my husband and I are listening to um, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights on, on like audible, I guess, in, in the car, uh, when we're in the car and like, that's like, that's my jam right now. It's like a pretty interesting story. He's like, he's an actor, uh, but he has like a pretty like non-traditional background and upbringing. He's 50 years old. So he's kind of like reflecting on all these stories about his childhood and like not being an actor, but trying to be an actor. And then now all of a sudden becoming like super famous and just a lot of cool, like professional and, and personal points there. So those, uh, those, those are the books. Those are the books that uh, are top of mind right now. I think Matthew McConaughey is one of the most soothing voices. I, um, yes. I listen to him in the evening on, on, on Calm. Yeah. And I just think that it's just so so relaxing and soothing. I'll certainly have to check out that one. My last question for you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? This is like so vague, but true. Like, I, you know, I definitely spent quite a bit of time like debating on do I want to start my own venture fund? Do I want to do it solo? Do I want to do it with a partner? Is a global pandemic the right time? Does the world need another venture fund? <laughs> it's like something I came back to like time and time again. And I talked to so many, you know, we're super lucky. A lot of our LPs are also the founders of like some of the tier one venture funds. So they're not only capital partners, but like they're a decade, two decades, three decades ahead of us in regards to their experience. And just like, just going for it. There's never a good time, right? And I was like, I literally had just found out I was pregnant. And like, it was kind of like, there was so many reasons. My husband started a retail tech company and like, he just raised his seed rounds. So like between the two of us, it was just utter chaos for, for a year. And I don't know, I just think if you know, you feel like you're born to do something and like you're losing sleep over the fact that you aren't doing it. Like save as much money as you can move back home with your parents and just like do it, give it a shot. <laughs> like give yourself a timeline, right? Like if in three, six, nine months, things aren't looking good, you know, call it quits, but at least like you'll know that you, you went for it. So yeah, I feel like we got like last year, got some just great like pushes from people of just like, Hey, like, you're good at this. Like, what are you waiting for? And I think, unfortunately, I needed a little bit of that external validation to, to do it. No, that's great, though. That's great, though. But you did it. And now you have a fund, which is awesome. And also, I really enjoyed learning about the thesis and as well as how it all came together with you and Lucy. That's that's fantastic. Well, Katie, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. And thanks for waiting six months to get it done while uh, birthed and fed a new human for, for a while. <laughs> And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Katie. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie Shea Says. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hold up. 